being middle class in the 19th century didn't necessarily mean being staid, respectable and safe. It did not come with the same connotations of conformity and acquiescence as it does today. The middle class was new money, but that new money had been earned. Before the 19th century, British society seemed divided in two, with the landed gentry and its inherited wealth, and the working classes often existing in conditions little better than serfdom, with a whole political system designed to keep it that way. The Industrial Revolution saw a new class of people who made their fortunes through speculation and innovation and manufacture, through technology and bold endeavour, and who were remaking society and challenging the political and social status quo, and in so doing were redefining the aspirations of the resourceful and the ambitious of the 19th century. This new money was often vulgar, brash, cruel and greedy, but it had been obtained for the most part on merit. The middle class in the 19th century was in its own way a revolutionary force. This wave of will to power even fed through to Victorian pastimes, and when people like Le Prince took up what we might view as hobbies, such as photography, they rarely tinkered. They innovated and experimented and redefined the possible. And it was perhaps one of the last eras in which the great innovations of the day came not from large established corporations, but from the obsessive, slightly eccentric inventors holed up in their sheds and their workshops. Lizzie asserted that her husband's first experiments in motion pictures dated from the years at Park Square. We don't know what these experiments were exactly, but we do have an idea of some of the influences that shaped them. Christolian work, for example, the colouring of images, which could have been used in his work on photography as well as his work on the colouring of ceramics and other materials. Composite photography, prints made up of images from different negatives, optical toys such as Chinese fireworks played on a machine called a chromatrope which projected vivid patterns onto a screen. The news of Edward Mybridge's photographic experiments with horses in motion could have been an influence and perhaps also the 1876 patent of Leeds-born Wordsworth Donisorp for a crudely designed motion picture camera. Le Prince was also surrounded by the photographic studios and suppliers of Leeds, and he belonged to the town's philosophical and literary society, which offered its members lectures on some of the latest developments in optics, art and photography. As well as these specific influences, we should also place Le Prince in a wider historical context. Photography was incredibly popular, and with that popularity came an awareness of the technologies that came before it and helped to create it. It's important to appreciate that Le Prince was living in an age where the idea of capturing motion pictures was certainly in the ether. 
the invention of motion pictures would be a coalescence of many existing technologies. And so to appreciate that, it might be worth setting some historical context. This episode will present a very brief lead-up to the birth of film, simply highlighting some of the technologies that preceded it. But I will be relinquishing the stage and reading from the introduction to a book written in the early years of the 20th century and never published. A book written by our esteemed adversary and fellow pilgrim, Will Day, the historian who so disparaged Le Prince and championed instead the work of William Freeze Green. Le Prince's biographer, Ernest Kilburn Scott, distrusted Will Day. If a man called Will Day calls, be careful, he wrote to the director of Leeds City Museum in 1930. He is a man who has been boosting Freeze Green. As a digression, I enjoyed the language Scott used here. Boost means now broadly what it meant in 1930, but the word was often used in slightly different ways. For example, in the early days of film, travelling showmen often toured from town to town, bringing with them the latest motion pictures and even shooting short sequences called actualities in the town in question in order to bring in an audience of locals eager to see themselves on a screen. When these showmen reached a town, they would boost their films, meaning they would be promoting them, marketing them, drumming up interest. So Scott is using the language of the early cinema trade here, and we can see from that that he has Will Day down as something of a showman, a carnival barker working with hyperbole and bluster. Nevertheless, Day deserves the stage. He was a true enthusiast. He had learnt how to use a magic lantern projector by the age of ten. He became an elocutionist, performing in halls around London, where he experienced some of Britain's first film shows at the Empire and Alhambra Music Halls in the mid-1890s, and soon afterwards he obtained his own film projector, thus beginning a lifetime's obsession with motion pictures. An obsession which saw him start his own picture theatre, try his hand at script writing, become a film equipment dealer, produce a comedy film, whitewashing the ceiling, and make propaganda lantern slides during the First World War. Day spent years amassing an astonishing collection of early film equipment, and his book, 25,000 Years to Trap a Shadow, was a huge labour of love for him. That it never found a publisher meant that Day remained in the margins of history, another flawed, forgotten hero of motion pictures. But Will Day was a film lover. Will Day was one of us. The Shadow Traps, Episode 9, 25,000 Years to Trap a Shadow 
from the introduction of Will Day's magnum opus, 25,000 Years to Trap a Shadow. Kinematography is not the result of one man's achievement. It is the resultant efforts of many scientific discoveries through the known history of the human habitation of this globe. It has been a colossal task to trace this wonderful science through the ages and it has also been difficult to know not so much what to include in this work as to what to omit from the mass of records secured and still impart the necessary knowledge to give the reader the essential facts. Commencing with the first records of the portrayal of movement in the shape of a trotting boar depicted on the walls of the cave at Altimira 25,000 years BC, and noting through the ages the various records left on ivory and bone, sometimes in the shape of drawings, and in other cases of sculptures and carvings, coming later to the Chinese era at a period of about 5,000 years BC, when figures cut from buffalo hide were shown in shadow form upon a screen of parchment, using the sunlight as an illuminant, thus giving moving shadow shows, 5000 BC. The really clever men of the ancient school of philosophers were those who, without any works of reference or anything but their own personal observations and investigations to guide them, laid the foundations for most of the branches of the science of physics as we know them today. How Thales of Miletus, through rubbing a piece of amber on his garment, discovered electricity, which force ultimately gave us the necessary illuminant for the exhibiting moving pictures. The formation of glass by the fusing of nitrate and sand, discovered by some Phoenician traders in cooking their evening meal, which gave others the means to produce a lens, without which cameras could not secure their photographic records or projectors exhibit them. The discovery of a lens, through a tear in the eye being perceived to enlarge an object, was brought about by the observance of one of this early school of philosophers, the application of which we see in the use made of this knowledge by Archimedes. Persistence of vision had been studied and remarked upon by several students of the ancient Roman and Greek schools, and the writings of Lucretius, 65 BC, make very clear the defined principles of this great phenomenon. The wonders of the camera obscura were also observed by these early scientists, and are quoted in the records of their lives, but the first fully annotated effects of this forerunner of the modern camera are to be found in the writings of Leonardo da Vinci, who, in his work, Trattato della Pertura, gives a full explanation of the phenomena concerned with this optical marvel. The invention of the optical lantern, or Magia Catoptrica, by Athanasius Kircher and his mechanic, Valgenstinius, gave another very necessary adjunct to the portrayal of movement upon the screen. The securing of an image upon a sheet of paper was first achieved by Tom Wedgwood, the son of Josiah Wedgwood, the great potter, with the aid of the camera obscura, although he died before he was able to fix the sun pictures he thus secured. A paper written by him upon this subject, printed for the Royal Society in 1802, 
at the instigation of his great friend Sir Humphrey Davy, the inventor of the miner's safety lamp, leaves a permanent record of his work. This was followed later by the work of Niesephore, Nieps and de Geer with their single print bitumen process. But the man to give us the first really commercial form of photography was Fox Talbot of Laycox Abbey in Wiltshire, England, who, curiously enough, in his original application for a patent of his Talbot-type process, claimed to be able to reproduce living figures by photographic means. The invention of celluloid in 1854 was the work of Alexander Parks of Birmingham, England, and this was first clarified for use in a hand camera in place of photographic glass plates by Mr Hyatt of New Jersey, USA in 1869, followed by J. Carbot of Philadelphia, USA in 1884. In the year 1887, the Reverend Hannibal Goodwin, an American clergyman, patented a process for clarified film in ribbon form. Whilst in England, W. Freeze Green, with the aid of Dr. Vragara at Thornton Heath, had produced sheets of clarified celluloid film from the raw dopey purchased from Mr. Main of Birmingham in July 1889, with which he secured his first kinematograph pictures taken at that time. Thus, in this short survey, we have now seen how the necessary adjuncts to form kinematography were brought into being, and from what simple origins the various phases of the sciences were derived. It now only remained for someone to amalgamate these great discoveries and consolidate them into one concrete formation to give the world the science known as kinematography. Although many writers, each in their own country, put forward some single individual as being the true inventor, if the facts are carefully considered, there is no doubt whatever that the credit for this great achievement must be given to the first man who was granted a patent for the complete process of being able to secure upon a band of celluloid film a perfect sequence of photographic images taken in rapid succession by a single camera fitted with one lens and taken from one point of view. This being the case, the credit can only be given to W. Freeze Green, a native of Bristol, England, whose specification was lodged at the British Patent Office on June the 21st, 1889, and his complete specification of March the 13th, 1890, for which he was granted letters patent number 10131. This is the first patent specification in the world to give full particulars for both taking and exhibiting moving pictures by photographic means as we understand the term kinematography at the present day. This patent has been upheld in America and all over the world as a prior patent for kinematography. Day shows us that a technology that has barely begun has a lineage of thousands of years, and Day has pursued it, although his introduction should be challenged at times. For example, a history of film today 
would not, I think, pinpoint a teardrop as a starting point for the discovery of the lens, nor would it pinpoint kinematography's birth as being with Friesgreen's patent, and nor would it call it kinematography. Even if there are things in this introduction that I don't agree with, I can't help but admire the sweep of the story and the ambition of the teller. And I think that the general thrust of the narrative is something that resonates with today's histories of film. Lenses had been used for centuries in telescopes and microscopes and in the camera obscura. Now the camera obscura or dark room pertains to the effect of light passing through a small hole in a box or a building which projects an image of outside onto the opposite wall inside the box or the building. Creating devices that exploited this phenomenon led to everything from drawing aids, artists could trace the image on a screen, to safe ways of viewing eclipses. And while the earliest known descriptions of the effect date back to Chinese writings from 500 BC, there is some wonderful research going on to explore the possibility that the camera obscura was being used to create cave art in the Paleolithic age. Day also mentions the persistence of vision, which in very, very crude terms was the theory, which has moved on slightly since then, that an image, an observed object, would leave a brief after-image, a trace on the retina, for a moment after the object itself had gone. This led scientists to conclude that if a series of still images of the stages of movement were viewed quickly enough, the viewer would see the series as being animated. In other words, I suppose, the after images would ensure that the viewer wouldn't see the joins. And Day, of course, mentions film's profound debt to photography, the creation of images through the action of light on a light-sensitive surface, which had been introduced to the world at large, in the early 19th century in various forms from the daguerreotype which came from the work of Louis Daguerre and Nies for Nieps and Fox Talbot's Talbot types and color types. Increasing shutter speeds and exposure times allowed photography to capture movement with ever increasing clarity. Most histories today I think would be in general agreement with Day that many of the constituent parts of filmmaking had been in existence for years and that the invention of the motion picture camera would be, in part, the first successful combining of all these technologies into a single-purpose-built machine. Of course, it wasn't quite that simple. An inventor would still need, for example, to work out how to achieve the intermittent movement of film in the camera and actually the projector too. Last week, we saw that this involved the repeated stopping of the film for the briefest of moments so that each frame was held still behind the lens just long enough to be exposed before winding on to the next frame. Another thing that Day mentions is the use of a long strip of film so that instead of capturing a single image or even just a handful of images, the camera could film continuously. Any inventor would need to incorporate these two things into their motion picture camera. Incidentally, there was a third innovation, sprocket holes, that enabled the regular and the reliable feed-through of film. But as we'll see in the weeks to come, 
some heart-stoppingly wonderful films were made without these. And as for the projection of film, they mentioned the optical lantern, and no history of film, however brief, would be complete without acknowledging the role of this device, more commonly known now as the magic lantern. Magic lanterns dated back to the 17th century and were introduced not as Day says by Athanasius Kircher, but more likely by the Dutch scientist and scholar Christian Huygens. The general principles behind it remained more or less the same right up until the end of the 19th century. It was an optical box or sphere or cylinder made from wood or copper or even cardboard amongst other things, inside which was a light source such as a flame or lamp or a limelight. A glass slide with an image on would be placed between the light source and one or more lenses in a lens tube at the front of the machine and the images projected onto a screen. A chimney was usually fitted to the device to allow the smoke to clear from the box and a reflector was sometimes placed inside the device to focus the light towards and through the lens tube. The types and combinations of lenses used changed and became more sophisticated over the years. Sometimes lenses sat behind the slide as well as in front of it. For example, a typical 19th century arrangement might be to have the light source in the main box, a plano-convex lens that converged the light rays, focusing them onto the painted slide, and then one or maybe two lenses in the tube to enlarge the image and project it the right way up. Sometimes a series of slides could be pushed or dropped past the lens, allowing for some very crude but often beautiful animated sequences. Magic lanterns were used in a bewildering variety of ways, from travelling shows telling fairy stories to magic acts to scientific lectures and all points in between. They became so popular that they challenged the written word as a way of entertaining and educating people. The magic lantern is important to the history of motion pictures, not so much for the technology behind it perhaps, but because its widespread use through the centuries meant that people were used to seeing images on a screen, even moving images. And there is so much more to add about the range of optical devices that existed in the 19th century, including basic machines like the zoetropes and the phenakistoscopes that we've encountered already. And we'll look at these phenomena in the weeks to come. Day himself did in his book. But for now, Day's introduction to his book is our introduction to the story of film. And reading this, I also find very interesting Day's really specific definition of kinematography. Day writes, Credit for this great achievement must be given to the first man who was granted a patent for the complete process of being able to secure upon a band of celluloid film a perfect sequence of photographic images taken in rapid succession by a single camera fitted with one lens and taken from one point of view. He goes on to say, that William Freeze Green's patent for such a camera, quote, is the first patent specification in the world to give full particulars for both taking 
and exhibiting moving pictures by photographic means as we understand the term kinematography at the present day. Now, I've been reading from a typed draft of Will Day's book and this draft contains a few annotations added later by the author and handwritten on this page are the words upon celluloid film in ribbon form so that Day's idea of the start of kinematography comes with a patent giving full particulars for both taking and exhibiting motion pictures by photographic means upon celluloid film in ribbon form. And not only is this definition very specific, but Day has obviously been working and reworking it. And it's interesting to see what he's done in light of Ernest Kilburn Scott's comments that we heard in episode 2, where Scott claimed that Day had an agenda to boost Freeze Green in order to raise the worth of his collection of Freeze Green equipment that he was looking to sell. And we are again now in the realms of speculation, but that's fine. It's good to explore these ideas, I think. So let's look at Day's definition, because one thing does jump out at me immediately, and that's that he gives the honour of invention to the first person to obtain a patent. I would have thought, and you might disagree, that the first example of kinematography would be the first time that it was actually done, regardless of whatever legal protection it did or didn't have. If a film had been demonstrated, had been taken and shown, I would have thought that that would have made for a stronger definition. And perhaps, perhaps, by looking for a patent rather than a film actually being made, Day would have more easily precluded someone like Le Prince from being seen as the inventor of film because, as we saw in episode 1, Le Prince's patents were for a multi-lens camera whereas the camera he actually used to make the films on which his reputation rests was a single-lens camera that wasn't patented. And Day is careful to specify that his definition is for a camera designed to film from a single point of view which would not only preclude Le Prince's multi-lens patent, but also the work of someone like Edward Mybridge, who built up his sequences from several separate cameras. But what to do about the chronophotographers? The scientists like Etienne Jules Marais, who worked with photography to study movement by dissecting it through sequences of photographs of animals in motion. For while they began by simply printing these photographs as still images, they soon learnt to animate them in brief looped bursts. This was movement attained through photographic images. Abbott Day had thought of that. That handwritten edition of his, Upon Celluloid Film in Ribbon Form, means that film is now considered to be something continuous, something which needs to have been shot with a long strip of film rather than a brief burst of a dozen or so images, which is then played back in a loop. So, he has dealt with that nicely, and at the same time has put another nail in the coffin of Le Prince's claim by specifying that the ribbon of film must be celluloid, rather than the sensitised paper that he used. Sensitised paper admittedly wasn't as good as celluloid, but it worked. Day might well have created this definition to carefully carve out a place for freeze green. But then again, to be fair, it was 
a decent definition and my own definition of a motion picture camera from episode one a camera that captured real life shooting continuously from a single point of view at a fast enough frame rate to produce a realistic sequence of images and with the express intention of having moving images projected back onto a screen to a mass audience is also very, very specific too. Ultimately, what film actually is, is still quite a subjective matter. Incidentally, the question of whether or not Le Prince actually used celluloid at any point is a matter of some confusion. Unravelling it has been one of the most satisfying parts of my research because it's led me to consider a possibility which I had not previously heard of or thought of, a possibility that one of the most technical elements of Le Prince's work might be fundamentally connected with one of the most emotional moments of his life. But that's for later. For now, we have Will Day's introduction to the epic and ill-fated 25,000 years to trap a shadow. And I think it is a useful document for us, because it gives us some sense of the lineage of film, and also a sense of how the early film pioneers might have seen things. The view from the beginning of the 20th century, seems slightly alien, even exotic to us. And once again, I am attempting to find a way to travel back in time to get the perspective from the 19th century. Perhaps that will help us to understand things better. Because the past, as they say, is another country. They do things differently there. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to know more about the project or support it in any way, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much. <laughs>